Anytime we approach a study of any portion of the Scripture, we need to keep in mind the purpose of it all. The uh, Scripture was written according to the Apostle Paul to make us wise unto salvation, to give us the, the wisdom that leads to salvation. It's to wise us up with reference to the nature of uh, what the Lord has done to save us and how to live that relationship out in a saving way. The uh, Scriptures are not given to teach us history, though uh, wherever they touch on history, we can expect them to be accurate. The uh, Bible is not uh, given to teach us science, though we can expect uh, the scientific data in Scripture to be true to the facts. The uh, purpose of Scripture is to save us and teach us how to walk in that saving relationship. I read just this past week that a, a noted heretic of some twelve or 1,300 years ago uh, said to Augustine that he had found the orbits of the planets in Scripture. And Augustine responded, uh, Felix, Scripture is not given to make astronomers out of us. It is given to make Christians out of us. And uh, that's no less important when we turn to the book of Revelation because our tendency in studying this book is to treat it a little bit differently than we treat any other material in Scripture. And uh, it always amazes me some of the uh, bizarre and outlandish interpretations that uh, are given to the book. Perhaps mine fall in that category in your mind as well. But uh, still they're there, and our tendency is to get preoccupied with, uh, with these things and miss the whole point of the book which is to teach us how to live in tough times. The uh, principles that are true during this seven-year period that precedes the coming of our Lord Jesus are just as true today. And though uh, we can understand something of God's future program and in broad outlines see the, the course that history will pursue, we uh, mustn't be preoccupied with that. The purpose of it all is to teach us how to live life today in a saving way. Now, uh, with that in the back of your minds. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. We've come to a major division in the book of Revelation. The uh, first 11 chapters form one very clear section, and uh, chapters 12 through 22, the second and final major division of the book. In chapter 10, we saw um, John given a small book, a little, little scroll, which he was told to eat. And when he ate it, though it was sweet in his mouth, it was bitter in his stomach. It caused uh, him some uh, upset. And uh, as we saw, the, the contents of that little book are revealed in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a kind of precy or summary of what will come afterward. And it describes something of the bittersweet character of our relationship with, uh, with the Lord Jesus. That though there is a sweetness about his indwelling presence. There is also the bitterness of circumstances in which that presence must be lived out. And uh, times will not always be easy. Uh, circumstances will, uh, will run against us. There will be tough times ahead. But uh, there is a sweetness in knowing that every, resources, or every resource needed, needed for living life is available to us. Now, that principle is given to us in summary in chapter 11. From chapter 12 on to the end of the book, John sees why life is so tough. He uh, is given a glimpse behind the scenes, and he sees the, sees the forces and the dynamics that are at work behind the scenes in human history to make uh, things so difficult. In chapter 12, we see a dragon who is the devil. And in chapter 13, two men that are characterized as beasts who embody 
the principle, the self-dependent, uh, autonomous principle of the flesh, that man can be man without God. And that philosophy makes its way throughout secular society through these two men represented as a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. And then uh, in chapter 14, uh, we're given a description of Babylon, the great uh, harlot that represents the world system, the uh, community of, of, of humanistically inclined uh, people, those who, uh, who are counting on themselves and depending upon uh, their own abilities. And uh, what John is, is told is what is at work behind the scenes to make life the way it is today. Now, we begin in chapter 12 with a revelation of the prime force behind all the distress and, and stress that we feel, that we experience in the world. He's described here as the great red dragon. John tells us that a great sign appeared in heaven that is in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the sky and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon took his stand before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. What John sees first is a woman who's clothed resplendently in, uh, in the light of the sun with the moon under her feet and the garland of stars in her hair. And uh, she appears to be carrying a child. And as John uh, observes, she goes into labor. And then he sees a great uh, fiery red dragon with seven crested heads. And ten horns, uh, ten horns on each of these seven heads. And seven crowns on the, uh, on the horns. And uh, the, this dragon uh, is of immense size. Its tail sweeps away a third of the stars, which then fall to the earth. And uh, the dragon takes its position before the woman to devour the child as soon as, as, soon as uh, the birth takes place. But uh, he's frustrated in his intent because the child is snatched up and taken away to heaven. And then, though he directs his efforts against the woman to destroy her, she likewise is protected for this uh, period of time, 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Now, what does all uh, of this mean? What sense can we make of it? Well, there have been a number of efforts down through the years to identify the woman. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, very modestly said she was the woman, and uh, the child is uh, Christian Science. Uh, many Roman Catholic uh, theologians would say the woman is Mary. Many uh, Protestant theologians would identify the woman with the church. But uh, it seems to me that uh, the woman is Israel. That's the most widely held point of view. And there are a number of reasons why 
uh, I believe this to be so. In the first place, she's described in association with symbols that are often found in association with Israel. She is wearing the light of the sun, the moon is under her feet, and uh, 12 stars in her hair. That brings to mind Joseph's uh, dream described for us in uh, the 37th chapter of Genesis. Joseph had a dream one night about his family, Jacob and Rebekah and his 11 brothers. And the patriarchal family that ultimately became Israel is described there as the sun, Jacob, the moon, Rebekah, and the 12 uh, stars, which represent the 12 sons of Jacob, which became the heads of the 12 tribes. So that it's best uh, to take these figures in association with their original setting in the Old Testament and see this as Israel. Uh, the second reason, I believe, why the woman can be identified with the nation of Israel because, is because of the birth of the child. Throughout uh, both the Old and New Testaments, Israel is pictured as the mother of the Messiah. Isaiah uh, predicted in Isaiah 9, Behold, a son is given to us, a child is born. And uh, the us there refers to the nation of Israel. And Paul picks up that same figure in, in Romans 9, and in describing all of the privileges of the nation of Israel, he says, From Israel the Messiah was born. And if you look at the description of the uh, man-child in verse 5, he is uh, described as one who will ultimately rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's a quotation from Psalm 2, which is clearly a messianic psalm and uh, is quoted in the New Testament with regard to uh, the Lord Jesus. So it seems to me without question the woman here can be identified uh, not uh, with the church but with Israel. Now the second sign that he sees is a great red dragon with seven heads. And uh, again, it seems to me that the identification is very clear, both by the way the dragon is described and later by the names that are attributed to this uh, reptilian winged uh, serpent. Uh, he is described here as a dragon with seven heads, possibly a reference to uh, the fact that uh, Satan and his, uh, his schemes are hard to put down. He's hard to kill. Or it may be a reference to his cunning, his intelligence. Seven is the number of perfection in this uh, highly symbolic book. And the seven heads would seem to refer to the fact that Satan is a highly intelligent, uh, extremely crafty, uh, capable individual. He's had uh, thousands of years to observe human history. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. And as Luther puts it, his craft and power are great. Likewise, he's described here as uh, with uh, ten horns. Horns uh, in this book represent power. And with seven diadems, again, a symbol of authority. So he's described here as an extremely powerful, intelligent, shrewd, crafty, loathsome, murderous beast whose uh, intent is to destroy. And then furthermore, we're told in verse 4 that his tail swept away a third of the stars. Now, there is uh, proof positive that Satan has a tail. It's right there in verse 4. Uh, I remember my father telling the story once of the Scottish evangelist Billy Nichols, who used to preach in the streets of Glasgow. And uh, one day he was preaching out in the open air, and he was being heckled by a man at the back of the crowd who kept shouting, Hey, Billy, when we get to heaven, how are we going to get our coat on over our wings? And uh, he got louder and louder and more abusive. And finally, after a while, 
Nichols uh, stopped his sermon and he he addressed himself to the crowd and he says, that man over there wants to know how we're going to get our coat on over our wings. Uh, He should be more concerned about how he's going to get his pants on over his tail. (laughs) But uh, despite all the folklore, uh, Satan and his demons probably do not really have a tail. He's not going to show up at your front door in baggy red underwear and a pitchfork. This is simply a, a, a symbol of what C.S. Lewis calls the Grand Rebellion, uh, that bad eminence, as Milton puts it, from which Satan uh, fell. The, uh, the doctrine of Satan in, in Scripture is not clearly delineated. It's, uh, you pick up bits and pieces here, but if you put it all together, you discover that Satan is a, is a created being. He's an angel. Uh, probably the highest of the created angels. Christians are not dualists. That is, we don't believe in, in an equal good and bad power, equal and opposite powers. We believe in one final authority, God, who created all things. And Satan is one of these uh, created beings. As the uh, poem puts it, God made Satan. Satan made sin. God made the place to put Satan in. Satan didn't like it, and he didn't want to stay, and he's been acting like the devil ever since that day. Um, this makes it clear that, that God created Satan. He is a, a created being. He's an evil angel who, in his rebellion, apparently drew with him uh, a large number of the angelic hosts. They're described here as stars. His tail sweeping a third of the stars from the sky is perhaps symbolic of this great rebellion which swept a, a minority of the angels. I think wherever a third occurs, uh, occurs in the book of Revelation... It's a reference to a lot, but not quite half. That is a minority, less than half. And a large number of uh, of these other created angels were drawn into this rebellion, and they, along with uh, Satan, fell. And they are responsible for the the mischief that that Satan has always wanted to work in God's creation. Now, furthermore, in verse 9, we're given a list of names which uh, make it possible to identify the dragon. He is described as the serpent of old. That places him in the garden with uh, Eve. He's the one who slandered God, who seduced this uh, innocent young woman and plunged the whole race into sin. He is called the devil. The word means slanderer. He slanders God. That's always been his philosophy. That's uh, That's what he said to Eve. Uh, You know, really, uh, God just wants to be the big shot. He wants to run everything. And He doesn't want you to have uh, the wisdom that He has. He's trying to suppress you and keep you in your place and frustrate your attempts to be yourself and and grow up to full manhood or womanhood. And uh, He slandered God and His character because God wants the very best for all of us. But He introduced into Eve's mind the idea that, that God is not seeking uh, the best for the human race. And that's why he has, from that time to this, been described as the, as the devil. Diablos is the Greek word. Our word diabolical comes from it. It means slanderer. And then he's described as Satan. The word means adversary. He invades against everything that God wants to produce in human life. God wants us to be hopeful. And Satan brings despair and discouragement. God wants us to be peaceful, and Satan is the one who makes us restless and uh, introduces into men the 40-year itch and 
and all of these other things that tend to upset us and unsettle us. Uh, God wants us to, to love and to be united and to care for each other, and Satan uh, sows hostility. Everything that God wants that's good, Satan is against, and that's why he's described here as the adversary, Satan. And then finally, it's said that he deceives the whole world. He controls the mindset, the attitudes of this world. He's behind the media. He's, uh, he is working. He's insinuating his philosophy through education. Uh, he turns up, his philosophies turn up at every hand. You just can't get away from it. We, uh, we think as Christians, if I can just uh, avoid reading Playboy and Hustler and Forum and, and pornographic material, if I can stay away from certain movies and stay away from certain books, then I won't, I won't encounter Satan's philosophies. But that's not true. He shows up in little golden books and, and uh, in Reader's Digest and Time Magazine and Ladies' Homes and Journal and uh, Ladies' Home, Homes and Journal. Is that right? Ladies' Home Journal. Whatever, you know. <laughs> and uh, Sunset Magazine. Just this past week, I got a letter from uh, Reader's Digest. And uh, it's addressed to... Mr. David Roper, uh, which is impressive to be known by a magazine that has 40 million readership, and it says, if you, Mr. Roper, are the grand prize winner in our new $250,000 springtime sweepstakes, a check in the amount of $50,000 will be deposited in your bank, and you could be writing your own personal checks such as these. Down payment to home builders, $19,900, which leaves you $30,100. Paid to Boise car dealer, $6,527. Paid to Idaho travel agent, $3,215. Paid to Idaho appliance dealer for TV, refrigerator, stove, $1,528.28, leaving you a grand total of $11,856. Then, he says, Mr. Roper, if you win the grand prize, you will have all this cash left over after you have made all your dreams come true. Now, that is errant nonsense. That is poppycock. <laughs> I don't care how many cars you buy or how many homes you build or how many TVs you uh, possess. Those things will not make your dreams come true. That's Satan's lie. We all know the more we get, the more we want. We're never satisfied. That's a bottomless pit. And the Lord tells us if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll be satisfied. That's what will fulfill us. But uh, Satan's lies come in from all sides, and we believe it. We're suckers. We just go right along with it. And what's worse, we aren't even aware that it's Satan behind all of this. If we believe that he doesn't exist, then we've just played right into his hands. Now, this is the way he's described, and these are the names that are attributed to him. And we're told in verse 4 of chapter 12 that his primary objective is to destroy the Christ child so he can frustrate God's uh, efforts to bring us salvation. That's what he's been about from the very beginning. John says that he took his stand, that's the force of the word that he uses, in front of the woman. He, he was standing there through all of history, ready to destroy the child. 
when it was to be born. In the, in the garden story, right after the fall, judgment was pronounced on the serpent, and uh, he was told that there would be unending hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That is, the man and the dragon would be in, in uh, enmity from the, from the very beginning, in a state of enmity. But, he says, the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. It's a very graphic picture of someone stamping on the head of a serpent and inflicting upon it a mortal wound and himself suffering pain as a result. It's a beautiful description of what happened in the cross. Thousands of years before the cross ever occurred. This was predicted. And furthermore, the Lord uh, told Satan that he would bite the dust. Dust, he says, you shall eat all of your life. You'll try to stop God's program, but you'll be frustrated. And like the villain in, in Western melodramas, you will time and time again slink away saying curses, foiled again. And ultimately, you will be foiled for good when the man, the seed of the woman, crushes your head. That will be the end of it. It will be over for you. Now, uh, from that time on, Satan tried to frustrate that program. If he could just kill the seed, then he wouldn't have to fear the threat. And uh, we know that uh, Eve had a little baby boy, and she called him Cain. Hebrew word uh, is Cain. It means uh, acquired. She said, I have acquired a, a man from the Lord. In other words, this is it. This is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. But as you know, he crushed his brother, and he just became part of the problem. He, he wasn't a solution to anything. And that was Satan. See, working through Cain, in this case, to frustrate God's purposes. And then uh, Adam and Eve had another son. His name was Seth. And as that line developed, there was a commingling of that line with the godless line of, of uh, Cain, or it may be some sort of demonic intrusion into human affairs. We're, we're uncertain how to interpret Genesis 6. But in any case, Satan almost frustrated again God's attempts to bring into being the seed. And as God looked over the human race, he said, All flesh has perverted its way. There was only one man in the whole earth who was righteous, and it was Noah. The seed was reduced to one man. And then we're told that Abraham, uh, the, the line was narrowed to the race of Abraham. And if you know anything of Abraham's life and what he did to Sarah, he almost frustrated himself, God's attempts to bring uh, the seed into, into, human, into the human race by jeopardizing Sarah's life. And uh, then later, the line is reduced further to one family, the family of David. And that line continued for a time until the 9th century B.C. And uh, a king, a queen by the name of Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, came into the southern kingdom, and she became the queen of Judah and tried to exterminate the line of David, and she killed every one of David's descendants except one, little Joash. And he was protected by the priests in the, in the temple. And though Satan, you see, was trying again to frustrate God's purposes, the Lord was sovereignly seeing to it that the line was preserved through which the man would come. And then when the Lord Jesus was born of the seed of, of David, Herod, as you know, became uh, Satan's foil to destroy the seed. And he almost got away with it. He wiped out all the children in Bethlehem. But the Lord Jesus escaped into... Uh, into Egypt. 
And finally, at the cross, Satan thought, I've done it. I finally uh, destroyed the seed. And he actually saw him die on the cross. And uh, the demons rejoiced and, and dined, and they thought it was all over. But the Lord again slipped through Satan's fingers, was raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God, and Satan was finished. The Lord had stamped upon his head. It was over. He was done for. And he knew it. And that's why you have described in the paragraph that follows a great war that breaks out in heaven. It's difficult to know what to make of the sequence of these events because Revelation tends to be telescoped. The events, historical events, are telescoped. So we're not always sure of the time span. But it seems to me that what's described in verse 7 is the result of Satan's defeat upon the cross. This is what Paul describes in Colossians 2 as the Lord Jesus, once for all, putting down all principalities and powers, triumphing over them in the cross. That's what this is. We're told there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. They were, he was cast out. He's done for. He's been overcome. And in verse 10 we read, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. In other words, uh, in the cross the Lord restored God's sovereignty over the universe. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. That's uh, one of Satan's schemes. He tries to force God by his sense of justice to destroy the human race. He, he would say to God, look at what Roper has done. Look at that gross thing that he did. How can you call him a son of God? Do you see what he's thinking? Do you see the bad attitudes that he's displayed? How can you justify the ungodly when uh, all along you told the judges of Israel they were to justify the godly and condemn the ungodly? And here you are justifying the ungodly. You're an unjust judge. And Roper should go to hell. And uh, the Lord says, that's right. He should. But uh, the son paid the penalty for that sin. And there is forgiveness on the basis of the cross. And he's cast down. He's finished. And furthermore, not only is he finished in heaven, he's finished in terms of his dominion over us. He can no longer rule us. He has no authority over us. And we're told how that comes about in verse 11. And they, that is the brethren, described in verse 10, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to death. Do you want to know how to overcome the dragon in your life? To once for all be done with, with discouragement and despair and, and guilt and greed and materialism and pride and all of the things that we fret over and cause us so much stress? Do you want to overcome him and his efforts in our life? Well, this is how. If you read many modern books today by uh, secular psychologists and others about how you do this, they'll tell you you need to 
somehow uh, uh, develop the hidden powers of personality and, and you can have meaning and purpose. You can make sense out of your life or you need more uh, to be more assertive. Uh, many suggestions which really just cause us to play right into Satan's hands. Satan just laughs at all of that. And uh, it's not uh, by lobbies and power moves and attempts to sweep the legislatures of the world, as George was telling us early, earlier. Uh, he tells us what we must do if we are to overcome, regardless of anything else we do. We have to do this. He says they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, that's not a magic formula. He's not saying that uh, we need to pray, cover me with your blood. He's rather talking about the cross and an understanding of what the cross means to us. We need to recall that it was when the Lamb's blood was slain that we were forgiven for sins past, present, and future. And not only that, we were identified with Him in His resurrection, so we have a new power for living life. Not only are we free from the guilt of sin in, in the past, we have power now to rise above temptation. We don't have to succumb to it. We don't have to give in to our moods and uh, our pride and our ambition and our self-seeking uh, spirits. We don't have to. We can conquer by the blood of the Lamb. It's the cross that did all of that for us. And secondly, by the word of their testimony. Now, he's not talking here about a word of testimony which we give, but the word made testimony in us. He's not talking about uh, putting bumper stickers on our cars or leaving tracks under our uh, dinner plate in lieu of a tip. Uh, it's not that sort of thing at all. It's the, it's the Word become flesh in us. It's our commitment to truth, our willingness to act in obedience to the Word, no matter what it costs us, and to make proclamation of that Word wherever we go. That's how we overcome Him, by remembering the cross and the power that's available there for all of life. And secondly, to remember the Word and what it trains us and teaches us to do and the knowledge that we have in Christ, all the resources to respond in obedience to the Word, even if at the time it doesn't make any sense. If we do it, we discover that it works. And finally, he says, they did not love their lives unto death. Now, in the historical context in which this was written, he's referring to the fact that, uh, that many of them were headed toward martyrdom. They'd have to live out their faith even if it meant, meant their death. Now, today, for us, uh, the test is not martyrdom. In some parts of the world, that might be what's required. It is, as a matter of fact. But for us, we haven't uh, come to that place yet. For us, it's the measure to which we're willing to resist the cult of comfort that we're immersed in. Are we willing to set aside our own desires for privacy and, and pleasure in order to serve are we willing to give up uh, our Sunday mornings, as precious as they may be, in order to teach children in Sunday school? Are we willing to, to turn off the television set and, and serve someone who comes to our door in need or to give someone a telephone call that we know is hurting? That's what it means to, to not love your life unto death. A willingness to serve and to give and to pour out your life. My, I just I have to tell you that this passage really convicted me this last week and the extent to which I have bought 
that idea that we need to protect ourselves and take care of ourselves and guard ourselves instead of uh, giving ourselves away as, as John describes it here. And uh, I thought of, of Isaac Watts, him, his great hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, which states well, I think, what, what John has in mind. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on feathery beds of ease? I suppose we would say today, driven to heaven in a golf cart. While others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. I just this past week uh, heard of an elderly missionary who had served faithfully in China for years. She was one of the few Western missionaries permitted to remain in China during the uh, Cultural Revolution in the early 60s. And she was uh, taken captive by the communists. And uh, they poured literally quarts of water into her frail little body and then stretched her out on the ground and jumped on her. And then she was, uh, she was uh, cast out of the country and came back uh, here to the States broken in body and some uh, 70 years of age. It took her approximately six months to recover. And when she got out of the hospital... She went to her mission agency and asked if she could be sent to Taiwan. And they turned her down because her health was so bad and she was elderly. And so she gathered a group of her friends around her and they began to pray for her. And eventually they raised enough support to send her back to Taiwan. And as far as I know, she may still be there in, in Taiwan serving today. And I read that and I thought, 70 years of age, my attitude would be it's time to retire. I've done my bit. Uh... I don't have to go through that sort of treatment again. But here's one who did not love her life unto death. And then we're told in the final paragraph of this chapter that when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times, and half a time. Uh, a time in John's book is a year. Times would be two years. Half a time would be half a year. So he's describing the same uh, span of time uh, referred to in verse 6 as 1,260 days. It's three and a half years. This is apparently the last three and a half years of the seven-year period described as the Great Tribulation. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. John is warned in verse 12 that there will be woe coming upon the earth and sea because the devil has come down to the earth having great violence, knowing that he has only a short time. He knows that he's finished. He's going to wreak as much havoc as he can in the 
years that he has, and that explains the mounting tensions during this seven-year period. And when the dragon sees that he cannot thwart God's purposes by destroying the child, he attacks the woman and persecutes her unmercifully. The symbolic reference here to a flood probably refers to some sort of overwhelming evil throughout the Old Testament. That's uh, the way a flood is used, metaphorically. And uh, it would seem to me to be a flood of anti-Semitic propaganda, a stream of invectives and uh, uh, various types of, of propaganda designed to stir up the world against the woman. This, you see, is the explanation for anti-Semitism. Uh, that, that's a phenomenon in human history that uh, no one has any, any explanation for. Uh, there, there simply is no way to explain it. Why have the Jews been treated the way they have? Why have they been hounded and hunted for centuries? If you uh, go to Israel uh, today, you should take the opportunity to go to the Museum to the Holocaust. It's not normally pointed out to, uh, to tourists, but if you go there, it's on the south side of the city of Jerusalem, and you walk into this great domed uh, structure down under the rock, and as you move from room to room, you'll see lists, names of families, and uh, pictures of entire towns that were wiped out, cities the size of Meridian that simply, simply ceased to exist. And... Uh, we ask, why? How can you explain that phenomenon? Well, this is why, you see. The, uh, the dragon, thwarted in his attempts to destroy the Christ child, begins to try to destroy the woman. That's been his goal from the very beginning, to try to prevent the birth of the child, and then once it's accomplished, to vent his wrath upon the woman. You see, most, uh, most anti-Semitists would say they, they if they consider themselves Christians at all, would say that they don't like Jews because they're Christ killers. But here we see the real reason for anti-Semitism. It's because the Jews are Christ bearers. That's why. That's why Satan hates them. That's why he stirs up the world against them. And that's why anti-Semitism is so wrong for us as Christians. If we dislike the Jews, then we've fallen right in line with Satan's strategies. I was flying back from Israel some years ago, and I happened to sit next to a couple of kibbutzniks who had just spent a year on a, a kibbutz in the Negev, in the southern part of, of Jerusalem, a girl and her boyfriend. They were from New York City and uh, had gone to NYU, and then they went over to Israel to, to work on a kibbutz. And we chatted a bit about uh, some of the things they were doing. They've literally turned the desert into a garden in, in the southern part of Palestine. And uh, it occurred to me after an hour or so that I hadn't even asked them their names, and so uh, they told me, and the girl's name was Mikal. And I said, oh, that's a noble name. And she laughed, and she said, how do you know so much about the Jews? Uh, Mikal was David's uh, wife, King David's wife. And I said, well, I, I love the Old Testament Scriptures, and I love the Jewish people. And her mouth dropped, and she said, why do you love the Jewish people? And I said, because they gave birth to our Messiah. And uh, explained to her from this, from this passage what was behind so much of the anti-Semitic behavior in the world. And she was astonished because she said, through the years I have never encountered a Christian 
who love the Jews. Now, that's unfortunate because there are many who do. But uh, it just pointed out to me the need again for us as Christians to demonstrate over and over again our love for the Jewish people. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with whether we ought to send aid to uh, Israel or arm them or whatever. I'm not talking about political matters. I'm talking about the attitude that we as individuals have toward the Jews that we encounter. We need to love them because they were the ordained instrument through which God's plan to bring salvation came. And they, as Paul said, are the ones through whom the oracles of God came, through the Jews. So we need to love them. Anti-Semitism is wrong. It's sin. And if we play into that, uh, if we become anti-Semitic, for any reason, whatever, we played right into Satan's hands because he wants to destroy them. And we're told that he, uh, he pursues them ruthlessly, relentlessly, and they flee, and the earth opens its mouth and drinks up the river, which is probably a reference to Gentile nations, God-fearing nations that protect them during this uh, three-and-a-half-year period in, at the end of human history, much as the Swiss and the Swedish people did during the 30s and the 40s, opened up their homes and their hearts and protected them. And when uh, Satan is frustrated in his efforts to devour the woman, he is so enraged that he goes off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And that I take to be the church. Now, whether you believe that the church will continue through the tribulation or not doesn't make any difference. There will be Gentiles who are believers who make up the assembly of God, the people of God. And it's these that, that John is referring to here who now are pursued by the, uh, by the dragon. And I take this to mean that there will be a wave of persecution that will sweep through the church unlike anything the world has ever seen. They will be hounded and hunted to the death. But uh, this passage tells us that whether we are there or whether we're going through some time of persecution or trouble or stress right now, we can overcome the evil one by remembering the blood of the Lamb, the principle of the cross, and the word of the testimony being true to the truth, no matter what lies are fed to us by the media and by secular society around us, and by making tr a proclamation of that truth and remembering to give our lives away, to love not our lives unto death. This last week I read Samuel Rutherford's poem, which very well summarizes the message of chapter 12. Rutherford said, When I am dying, how glad I shall be that the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. I shall not care whatever I gave of labor or money one sinner to save. I shall not care that the way has been rough, that thy dear feet led the way is enough. And when I am dying, how glad I shall be that the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. Let's stand together. And let's pray. Father, we hear these words, and uh, perhaps our reaction is to think that we simply don't have the strength or the resources or the ability to, to do what's required. It's good to remember this morning that we don't. It does not depend upon us. It all depends upon you. We simply want to put ourselves at your disposal this morning. 
thankful for the cross and what it means to us in terms of our complete redemption. You are satisfied with the sacrifice of your Son, and nothing can undo that state of forgiveness and grace in which we exist. We thank you also for giving yourself to us that makes it possible for us to to live in power and authority and to overcome. And we thank you for your word that speaks truth. Teach us to respect it and honor it and to love it and to live it out, to be men and women of the book who uh, seek the truth and live accordingly. And uh, use us, Lord, during these difficult times when others find life so meaningless and empty and when there is very little left in life to, to give joy and satisfaction to be agents of reconciliation to speak truth to those around us, to speak it in love, to draw them in in a redemptive way and bring them into a relationship with you. We ask you to do these things for us. We make our wills, our bodies available to you for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.